I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 33 of the Overcast, Seattle Times politics podcast. This week, we're looking at the Seattle mayor's race. Um, We'll do a quick recap. It's been a busy week. Obviously, incumbent mayor Ed Murray, who we had on a while ago, um, is in trouble. He's got these sexual abuse allegations against him that we've reported on going back a long time. He strongly denies them. Um, Three men now have come forward and claimed that he had abused them when they were basically underage in the 1980s. He has, again, strongly denied all that and um, is facing a lawsuit over it. This week, what one thing that was new is the accuser in that lawsuit, who'd previously just gone by his initials DH, um, sort of agreed to shed his anonymity and said his name is Delvon Heckard. He said, this is who I am. I don't have anything to hide, and I'm, I'm accusing the mayor. And the mayor came back with a press conference, or with a statement anyway, and said, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what he's talking about. I never had a sexual relationship with this man. I've never had sex with minors or paid for sex. So really, it, it almost couldn't be a stronger denial. Yeah, and meanwhile, the the mayor has been out doing merrily things, um, filling potholes for TV cameras. And uh, actually, we just saw he that he spoke at a press conference at the scene of of a shooting downtown uh, where two police officers were shot uh, responding to an attempted robbery. So he's yeah. out doing mayor things. And, um, you know, he took questions from reporters um, this week at a press conference about uh, a legal tree-cutting lawsuit in West Seattle. But after after talking about that, he took questions from reporters on the allegations against him and and said, I'm still running for re-election and uh, I had a fundraiser already this week and, and I'm doing all the, the normal stuff when it comes to running for mayor. Yeah, he's still, he's still basically saying, I'm innocent, so why should I go away and hide in my city? And he is tweeting and tweeting himself pictures at various events and saying, I'm, I'm not going away and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight this with everything I have and doing some TV interviews. He has not consented to an interview with the Seattle Times on this, we should say. Um, the race, though, has changed. His vulner- perceived vulnerability is, has uh, brought in some new candidates, right, Dan? I mean, the former mayor might begin, and tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, Monday morning, first thing, there was this tweet from uh, former mayor Mike McGinn's Twitter account that had this logo, McGinn 2017, keep Seattle, this this, which is apparently is his campaign slogan, he's running again for mayor, a comeback bid under the slogan Keep Seattle, which he mm-hmm. says sort of has something to do with keeping Seattle affordable and progressive and not letting it become another San Francisco where regular people can't afford to live here. But he, uh, the, the, the slogan sort of raised some eyebrows about, you know, is it, is it um, make America great again, make Seattle great again type slogan or what, what exactly does it mean? Um, but but McGinn, uh, obviously a, a big, well-known figure in the city, ha- has now jumped into the race. He said he was considering it for several weeks. Uh, he didn't directly, you know, talk about the allegations against uh, Ed Murray. The closest he came to sort of addressing that was saying, "Well, I, I did look at the lay of the land, uh, or, or something like that." Um, yeah. But 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 he's in the race. And it, then, it was a surprise, though, to everybody, right? Waking up with this Twitter and keep Seattle and what is that? And McGinn, really, you know, the 
you know, the, the uh, Irish brawl potentially again, although, you know, they're not the only ones in the race, and that's what we're going to talk about. Who else got in? Yeah, and just for background, for people who might be, you know, new to Seattle, uh, Mike McGinn was mayor from 2009 through 2013, and in 2013 was unseated in a general election by Ed Murray. But, yeah, we had, a, we had a, yet another person um, who uh, later in the week announced, Carrie Moon, uh, is a uh, urban planner and uh, former landscape architect, and uh, she's best known in Seattle sort of politics for being uh, a big uh, civic activist and opponent against replacing the Alaskan Way viaduct with with a tunnel or a new surface um, uh, highway. You know, going back ten years ago, when folks in the city and the state were trying to decide what to do to replace the viaduct after the Nisqually earthquake. Uh, show that it was vulnerable. She said, "Hey, we should. We just shouldn't really replace it with another highway, either underground or above ground. We should just make it parks and housing and and reclaim our waterfront." Of course, and, now Bertha's, you know, broken through the the, the drilling machine, so the tunnel's right. kind of done. Right. But... So what she said about that was, uh, yeah, she lost the tunnel battle. I mean, the tunnel is has been dug now, uh, and it's going to be a tunnel. Uh, but she said she thinks her activism did contribute to there now being a plan uh, to have a park along a new park along the waterfront. And she says her new big issue is affordable housing. And she says one of the reasons why uh, home prices and rents are going up in, in the city is because of outside investors sort of. Uh, uh, buying property in Seattle and flipping it or buying it and just keeping it as an investment property. And she wants to see more data on that. So a bunch of candidates in, and that's sort of a long lead in to, to what we're really here to do today. We talked with another candidate who got in quite a while ago. I think one of the first candidates challenged Ed Murray, Nikita Oliver, um, before these lawsuit allegations. Yeah. And we- weeks before, before the allegations surfaced, uh, Nikita Oliver uh, enter the race and was the most prominent challenger that Ed Murray had and is still in it. And um, and so we spoke with her. And her campaign has, you know, as, as, as you'll hear, has, has had quite a bit of excitement or momentum around it on a, on a grassroots level. She's running as a People's Party candidate. I think had 800 people at her kickoff. Obviously, you know, it's, it's a maybe an uphill battle. She hasn't run for public office before, but she has generated some excitement and she kind of filled us in on that and on, on uh, what her ideas are for the city. We're here with Nikita Oliver. She's a attorney, organizer, and artist, and she's running for mayor of Seattle. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So maybe we can just start, um, you know, we've written some about you in the paper and online, but some people may not know a lot about you and your campaign. So just uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How are you introducing yourself to voters and your background to voters when you're out in the city campaigning now? Yeah, so my name is Nikita Oliver. I am running as an independent candidate uh, with a new party called the People's Party, uh, which started earlier this year, the party did, as a response to just looking at the way in which partisan politics, it seems to be more about the party and less about the issues uh, substantively most impacting people. And so we decided to get together as grassroots organizers and uh, educators, lawyers, service uh, industry people, and, and start to think about what would it look like to have a party that actually represents um, our issues. And as a result of that, uh, knowing that Seattle is having this major election, uh, we decided that we would run a candidate for uh, mayor. And after a lengthy process and a number of conversations, it, I was the candidate selected by the party. 
And the way that I tend to introduce myself as a, is as a grassroots community organizer, a licensed attorney, educator, and an artist. Uh, the, I mean, those would be the, you know, the labels. Yeah. And are you the, so you're the first candidate of the People's Party in Seattle? I am the first candidate of the you, People's Party you, in Seattle. You, is the party going to be a force going forward? Do you think that we'll see you know, other candidates run for city council or some other races going forward? Absolutely. Uh, we're thinking about this long term. How do we really? How do we not end up in the situation that we're in politically when we look at um, our current federal administration? Um, and our thought process is that we begin to develop a party that has deep roots in multiple communities, but in particular in those communities that are most vulnerable and marginalized in our city, and develop a general assembly model where we then um, help people learn how to run for office, prepare them to have the necessary skills to know about city, county, school, school board politics, um, and really start thinking about what does it mean to run slates of community members um, within a government that is said we're formed by the people. And so want to make sure people have those skills, find ways to make it more accessible. So with this first election, we're doing a lot of learning, um, a lot of cataloging of of what it is required to run a grassroots campaign, um, and one that is really about the issues and the people, acknowledging that there's some traditional ways to do a campaign, uh, and those traditional ways don't necessarily work for us. For example, we're not taking any corporate donations. This is really about having a populist candidate. Okay, and, may, and we should just note that technically the um, city elections are nonpartisan, right? Uh, right, um, but obviously, uh, you know, there's legislative dis- democratic district organizations that are just like tonight are getting involved in, in in the race and endorsing and that kind of stuff. So partisan politics is part of the city, and some of scene. which refuse to endorse anyone that doesn't claim their party. So to say we're nonpartisan at some levels a little bit intellectually dishonest you know it's more it's been largely monopartisan true <laughs> true <laughs> that's part's true so that's Although, true we do have the uh shana sawan and the um social alternative. alternative party making inroad too mm-hmm. um why why exactly was there a moment when you decided to run for mayor and you know how much did it have to do with what the, the incumbent mayor ed murray is doing and what he's doing right or wrong you know What it came down to, so I went to Standing Rock in November, and I was there for about a week, and on our drive back, uh, the other car that we traveled with was in an accident, and a friend of ours died. And it was in that moment, after having been at Standing Rock and watching kind of a state of lawlessness happen, um, as well as recognizing that like all it required was a signing of a piece of paper to change what was going on there, um, it was realizing how much power our public officials have just with the stroke of their pen. And so that happened. We got back the night before the election. And so then we're watching this election happen. Um, then in a lot of ways just felt very traumatizing, but also as someone who went to law school and was taught that using these processes like the courts and the electoral process is how we bring change forward and seeing that we're actually taking many strides backwards um, started to create, not just for myself, but for a lot of people, a sense of apathy, like, as it, about the political process. Um, and as we started sitting down having conversations about it, uh, none of us wanted to stay in that place. We're organizers. We are solution builders. And so the solution to that became, um, you know, we need, to, we need to get folks to run. And too, for too long have we been just 
totally anti-establishment. Um, you know, we know how to lobby, we know how to advocate, we know how to read all the documents. I think it's time that we work to get some folks that we trust and we can hold accountable to the table. And so, yeah, while, while I have issues with things that um, Mayor Murray has done, it's really about not allowing ourselves to give into a sense of political apathy. We actually have a lot of power, um, and running a populist campaign has has the power to be very transformative, not just in Seattle politics, but I think politics nationwide. Yeah, a lot of people got more politically active here after the election <laughs> of Donald Trump. We've certainly mm-hmm. seen that. Yeah, and so talking about sort of translating from the activism side to uh, running candidates uh, for office here and elsewhere. Uh, what are the some of the activist uh, movements or activism that you've been a part of um, that relate to city politics? Like I know, I think you were involved in the Block the Bunker uh, to some extent. That's maybe one example. But mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, my work actually goes back a lot farther than what I often get credit for, which usually people do block the bunker or no new youth jail or Black Lives Matter. Um, I started working on the south side of Seattle on the Rainier Beach community with a Christian community development group called Urban Impact, where we were doing a lot of thought around how do you galvanize community to advocate for itself, not just in the sense of um, getting people out to meetings, but also educating people around how do you access policy, how do you access policy makers, how do you write policy um, that both in terms of facially and implementation actually impacts the people who most need uh, positive impact. And so um, that's where a lot of my work started was working uh, in the Rainier Beach community alongside community members, not on their behalf, but really with them. Um, How do you build consensus-driven models that are informed by the people most impacted by them was, was the start of of that work. And so um, over time that has transformed, um, especially as like the context in the world that we live in has transformed. I was in law school uh, learning about, well, I went to law school because I was teaching at a school called Seattle Urban Academy, where a, a number of my youth were court involved. We'd go to court, I'd go to court with them, and we would all leave and, and be like, I don't actually know what just happened in that court process. And um, that was very disturbing to me because I could see how this court process was deeply impacting these young people's lives and their families' lives for the long term. So I ended up going to law school because I realized there were some skills I really needed in order to be both an effective organizer but also an effective um, advocate. And while I was in law school, um, Mike Brown was murdered, uh, the acquittal of George Zimmerman happened, and then the non-indictment of Darren Wilson. And so those became very relevant conversations in Seattle because of the consent decree uh, with, with the Seattle Police Department. And so I got involved in that as a movement, which also connected to then um, the No New Youth Jail campaign because my work as an educator, and that all ended up connecting to Block the Bunker. So my body of work is very much around how do you help community members understand the policies that are being put in place in some place like City Hall and then galvanize us in an educated way to be able to advocate for ourselves. And um, I'm going to talk to get to some of the issues and specific proposals that you're laying out. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's a big uh, elephant in the room, I guess, in, in city politics right now, the allegations surrounding Mayor Ed Murray, um, you know, a lawsuit accusing him of sexually abusing a teenager basically in the 80s and two other men who come forward and made similar allegations. What's been your reaction to that? And did it affect your decision to run at all? 
So we announced on March 8th, long before the allegations came out. So no, it had no bearing on our decision to run. Uh, my decision to run personally was really an answer to the plea of my community members saying, we trust you, we believe in you, we want to get behind you. Um, and that for me was my motivation. Um, in regards to allegations, as an attorney and as someone who has done uh, defense work, I've never worked on the prosecution side, it's very important for me that we allow the court process to play out and myself and my party have no interest in politicizing tragedy. This is tragic. Um, it has a lot of ramifications for a lot of people. And as someone who has watched these sorts of um, cases be litigated, a lot of people will be incredibly traumatized by this process. And so uh, our interest is in allowing the court process to play out and uh, do our best to trust that, that that justice will will happen in that regard. Okay, and, and moving on to some specific issues that um, may come up uh, in the campaign. Uh, you know, you men mentioned the no youth, new youth jail uh, movement or or issue. Um, would you uh, have dealt with or be dealing with um, that issue in a different way than? Uh, Ed Murray has, and of course, this is uh, King County has a project to build a new uh, youth detention center and courthouse um, uh, in the Central District in Seattle. Yes, I, I absolutely would have dealt with it differently um, for a number of reasons. Um, I think pragmatically, it is a lot of money to spend on a facility that is not really used for what they propose it's going to be used for. Um, and there are less than 40 children there on average. So $230 million into the wrong end of the school-to-prison pipeline is bad for our city, even though it's county dollars. Um, what science has told us, social science, is that when you um, imprison a youth, when you incarcerate them, you actually increase the likelihood that they will... Um, commit additional crimes, but usually they will commit more violent crimes. And so what we've argued um, with a lot of city officials who say this is a county project, it's hands off for us, is actually this impacts our city. It makes our city less safe, especially when we put young folks in there who are there on Becca Bill status offenses or even accused of uh, nonviolent offenses. Um, we actually make our city less safe or we allow our city to be made less safe. And I think this is very much a public safety issue for us. And so I think Mayor Murray has had lots of opportunity prior to when he put out um, the, the Stranger article where he said, you know, we should take a second look at this, has had lots of opportunity to delve into the social science of it, uh, see how it impacts safety in our city, and then at least boldly speak out against it. There's so much more that we could be doing with $230 million. And I think the city and the county, if we were to work better together, could find uh, ways to benefit um, our young people, our school district, and the overall safety of our city. Um, and that it is a bold stance, you know, and it requires knowing how to have a nuanced conversation about restorative justice, but also crime and punishment and acknowledging like we just aren't doing a very good job when it comes to youth and families. So would the goal be to block this new project, put more money in the, the, the right end, as you said, of the prison, you know, pipeline, prevent people from getting there? Would there still be some role for incarceration, you know, for for youths who've committed, you know, violent crime, or what's your, what's your, how do you measure that? I think we have to think about the difference between incarceration um, and, and detainment. Uh, I think when young people commit, which doesn't happen very often in Seattle, when young people commit uh, very violent crimes, 
we do need to figure out how we keep the public safe. Um, that's not most of the crimes that are committed by youth in Seattle, just statistically speaking. Um, and so I think using those extreme examples as our argument for incarceration is, is very problematic. Um, I'm not saying that tomorrow we can go tear down the youth jail. We can't. We've spent, we've put so much uh, energy and resource into the wrong end of the school to prison pipeline. We have a lot of work to do on the other end, especially as we look at a $74 million deficit in Seattle Public Schools District. Um, but what I am suggesting is that we have to take a bold stance about what just simply is not working. Evidence-based, we know that incarceration does not serve our city and it doesn't serve our young people. So why not why not instead of doubling down on um, an antiquated system, we begin to build a better system so we can eventually get to this zero detention goal, which is a resolution that the, that the Seattle City Council passed. And I'm incredibly thankful we passed that because I think it is the sort of goal that when you have a safe, healthy community, you can actually get there. Um, but I do think that there is the reality of grappling with the possibility of extreme violent crimes. Um, the flip side of thinking about whether or not we detain those youth is who contributes to an environment or a context where young people will commit those kinds of violent acts? And as grown-ups, as adults who run this city, have we considered the ways in which we need to be accountable to the context that we've created that a young person might actually get involved in that kind of violent act? And so I think the sort of accountability we're talking about um, when we talk about detaining those youth actually has to go multiple directions. Something like like poverty in our city, the extreme opportunity gap that exists does contribute to the possibility of having those extreme violent acts happen. And another issue, talking about poverty, homelessness is a big issue. Everyone's talking about it. I think I read uh, you were, you'd been critical of the mayor's and the People's Party had been critical of the mayor's particular response in terms of the levy that he had proposed. But what, what's your take on what the city should be doing that maybe it isn't now? Yeah, I think the city needs to get involved in actually building housing. Uh, we've been waiting too long for private options to happen. We keep doing votes on levies that actually um, could possibly, like especially when we think about our elderly population, our seniors, could actually put some people out of their homes because we keep using property taxes as a way of building these funds. We need to use more sustainable models. Um, one conversation we've been having is about we could use the city's bonding capacity to get involved in building housing immediately. Um, if we wait on the private industry to do it, we're going to be three to five years out for it to happen. And really, HALA puts the weight on the private industry, but also, in a lot of ways, gives um, developers a free ride. Three to six percent is not a, a lot to ask. I think we really need to be elevating to 20 to 25 percent like other cities. Uh, but the city could get involved with its own bonding capacity, build city housing, get folks into affordable homes. We also need to redefine what is affordable. Um, I work in our local schools frequently, and many of our teachers tell me that they can't even afford to live in our city. So if our teachers that are working in Seattle Public Schools can't afford to live in our city, uh, I mean, we have a major problem, not just for the cash poor and low income, but also our middle income residents. Yeah, and just to add some context here, um, I think uh, during the last budget cycle, the city council um, did amend the mayor's proposed budget to do something with bonding capacity to raise some more money for housing. Um, so maybe that's something like, that you'd want to see more of. And then, uh, you the, when you talk about affordable housing, the uh, program or plan that the mayor has been spending the most sort of uh, political uh, uh, firepower on um, in the last couple of years is what he calls the mandatory housing affordability 
program that's paired with upzones. So uh, the mayor and the city council have been have started to pass a series of upzones uh, in different neighborhoods in the city, and then uh, while allowing developers in the private market to to build taller, bigger buildings, then they're saying putting new requirements on those developers to either build or pay to help the city create affordable housing. But you're saying those requirements aren't high enough, it sounds like you're saying, and also, um, you know, don't rely on private developers to to create that. Uh, And maybe not even uh, the nonprofit developers who the city is giving the passing the fees to, but the city itself should be should be building housing. I mean, we do have the housing Seattle Housing Authority, right? So maybe can you just um, what do you think about that sort of MHA upzone whole plan? Yeah, I think the the upzone plan just is not drastic enough given the state of emergency that we've we've been in for a long time. I mean, there are four thousand plus. Uh, children, families, individuals sleeping outside every single night in our city. And as a teacher, I actually encounter a lot of houseless and homeless youth at school. Um, And it has a drastic impact on their ability to participate in the school system. So I think the city needs to take, um, for something we've declared a state of emergency, we need to act like it's an emergency. And so I think the the MHA, MHA HALA up zones and the linkage fee just simply is not enough to meet the need, uh, especially of our growing city. Um, the private housing that's available just is not feeding the market fast enough. And so with the number of people that are moving to our city every day, uh, which I think is like 200 to 240 on average was the last number I saw from the Seattle Times. That's a lot of people. So that means housing supply and demand simply says it's going to continue to get less affordable. I think the city getting involved and using a multifaceted structure or a multifaceted strategy, including still working with nonprofits, because I think there's something valuable to that, allows us to not simply get housing faster. But we also have to deal with the fact that if we don't have more low barrier housing, uh, in particular for those who are dealing with drug addiction or maybe have criminal records, we're going to continue to see a high state of homelessness in our city. And the city has the ability to create that low barrier housing in ways that I'm not sure the nonprofit um, agencies are willing to do just because of liability issues. And, and so uh, if, if you want the city to get into building more affordable and low barrier housing, but you're, you're concerned that... Uh, going back again and again to the well of property taxes, you know, is a problem. So where does that money come from? Does it come from just uh, more fees on developers? Does it come from some kind of new tax, big business? Where does it come from? The money has to come from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, speaking without having the same kind of insider knowledge that Murray's office has, um, I think our bonding capacity is one way, which obviously we have to recoup those funds. Um, I I do support... um, a, a t- more progressive tax scheme. Um, I think we have taxed our low-income and cash-poor folks to the maximum that we can. And so we really need to ask our more wealthy residents in our city, who I think have um, the, in- the, the investment in seeing our city be healthier, who I believe that they want to be involved in that process, to to get involved in seeing taxes be more progressive in our city. And we can't continue to rely upon property tax. We just simply can't. We're going to end up putting, to deal with houselessness and homelessness, we're going to end up putting people out of their homes, which just is, is going to be a cyclical problem. So there's been a proposal, and we had one of the advocates on here for a Trump-proof Seattle tax, yes. and I think a Seattle income tax on the wealthy. 
Um, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That is the sort of thing I'm talking about. Um, I think my language around it is differently in the sense that I actually believe that most Seattleites are invested in seeing um, our homelessness crisis dealt with. And so it's not just simply a tax on the wealthy, but I think it's a matter of if we look at who has what to give in our city, how can we be more equitable in finding ways to get our city healthier and safer? And I think asking our more wealthy residents to invest more and in seeing our city be healthier is, is really is important. And I think folks will get along uh, on that. Um, also, when you look at the communities that are most uh, uncomfortable with encampments, I think the way that we address that discomfort that I think is very real and presents some very real fears is for the city to get involved in building housing quickly because encampments, encampments are still people living unsheltered, still people living outside, still doesn't provide the kind of stability that helps people get healthy. And I think um, especially in those wealthier neighborhoods where people are uncomfortable with the encampments, but also in all the neighborhoods, asking people to invest to the level that they're able um, in building housing for all Seattle residents is, is a fair, it's a fair ask. I want to double back also to something you said. I think you said the uh, upzones aren't um, enough. The upzones that are being done aren't, aren't enough. Um, obviously, the mayor got blowback for what he had proposed initially or his committee proposed initially for single-family you know, resi- residential areas. Do you think that those areas need to you know, suck it up and just uh, not be just single-family residential areas, or how do you en- envision that? You know, I think what we're dealing with... Uh is the right to stay on multiple levels for multiple people in our city. Um, I met with a group of homeowners last week, and uh, one woman told me a story about having her family having owned their home in the Central District for 30 years. She moved to Atlanta to work for a while, and then to retire, came back to Seattle. This is a, a black Central District resident. And um, when I asked her about how she felt about density and up zones, what was her biggest issue, one of them was, you know, my family's had this home for 30 years. This is where I thought I could retire to. The second thing was I see the character of my neighborhood rapidly changing. The flip side of that is with more residents coming to our city every day and Seattle being such an incredible city, we're going to continue to grow. Density is an inevitability. And so really what we're thinking about is how can we preserve the character of neighborhoods? How can we keep especially our seniors in their homes, but also how can we meet the growing need for housing? And I think this is really about strategic development uh, and thinking about where are places where high-density urban centers in our city are most useful. And what these homeowners told me was, it's not that we're completely anti-density in our neighborhood, it's that we've never been asked where we would want the density to go. And so I think we have to get to a level of consensus in our city where we understand the multiple issues that people are facing um, as our city grows and becomes more dense. Uh, The People's Party's stance is we are pro-strategic development. We are pro-density when it's thoughtful and strategic. We are also anti-displacement. And I think that's going to require some more effective conversations. And I'm not talking about like another round of the Seattle process, because that tends to leave a lot of people out. But I am talking about how do we figure out when people want to preserve the character of their neighborhoods, what do they actually mean? And how do we do that in a way that does provide more housing? Um, And how do we support, in particular, I'm thinking about our seniors, how do we keep them in their homes? Um, I think is really important. It's tricky. It doesn't sound like you have a one-size-fits-all scheme for it, but more conversation and 
you know, more neighborhood planning and things like that have been done in the past around urban villages? Yeah, I, I just don't think we can have a one-size-fits-all for the city, even, just ge- geologically speaking, even. Like, density cannot go everywhere in this city because geologically, Seattle is not uh, able to hold that, right? Um, and even just thinking environmentally, uh, a lot of envir- environmental scientists that we've met with to talk about urban planning have told us about where the water is going to rise, what places are most likely to get flooded. If we were to build density, where would it be most fiscally responsible to do when we think about the long term of our city? I think what Seattle needs is a vision, a vision for how we preserve the character of our city while simultaneously creating spaces for people to live. And I think transportation has to go lockstep with that. Um, And so we do have some challenges to work out. What I do believe is our city has the ability to get to a good comprehensive plan that, that I think people are going to be able to at least rally around because they see that it's building a better, stronger city. Uh, but I don't think there's a perfect, I mean, I just don't think any candidate could give you a 100% answer without just straight up saying, uh, we'll build everywhere or we'll build nowhere. And that's just not the appropriate route to go. Yeah, and I, I mean, for the last couple of decades, I think since Norm Rice, Mayor Norm Rice, there's been sort of this urban village concept where, yeah, we're going to concentrate density in these certain dozen or so or more areas, Northgate, uh, uh, the University District, other places, Mount Baker. Um, and so you'd look at something like that, but sort of a new vision of, of, of where the growth should go. Yeah, and also where, where can folks in the neighborhoods that haven't quite yet taken any density, where would they be willing to accept that density at? Um, I think reality is it's been put in almost the same places every time, which has contributed to gentrification, has contributed to push out, has contributed to this idea of everyone having to be renters in those particular neighborhoods. Um, I do think the neighborhoods that have not yet experienced that kind of growth, uh, there is a reasonable compromise there that folks would be willing to come to, especially given that they had the opportunity to buy into it. I mean, I, I honestly believe that there are a lot of reasonable folks in our city uh, who understand the value of continued growth, but also the value of preserving the culture of a space. Okay, and maybe we can kind of wrap up with a little bit of a conversation about how you feel like the race is going so far and how your campaign is going so far. Um, it's changed even this week with a couple of new candidates jumping in. So the but and the candidate uh, Andres Solomon actually announced today he's dropping out. So there's been a lot of change and recently. How do you see the race shaping up and how you fit into it and how's your campaign going? Yeah, there have been a lot of changes in this campaign uh, on a regular basis. Um, first of all, our campaign personally, I feel incredibly encouraged by. So our campaign rally launch had 800 plus people at it. We turned away another 200 just because of building capacity. Uh, and it was an incredible uh, day of just celebrating what it means to galvanize community. All of the performances and the speeches were all by um, women, and it was a great space to honor uh, what it means that our city hasn't had uh, a woman mayor in 91 years since 1926, yeah. right? One woman mayor, Bertha Knight Landis, for two years, a long time ago. A long time ago. And so um, to, to think about that, to honor her, but to also think about what it means to have women running for office, but to also have women in office. Um, so it's, it's great to see Carrie Moon get into the race um, and, 
you know, any other woman who decides to throw her hat in the ring. I think that's powerful. It's narrative changing. Um, our campaign has been encouraged by the fundraising capacity. We're not taking any corporate donations. And the, the folks on our campaign who are Native have even decided that for us we won't take tribal donations, not because we think of tribes as corporations, but because we strongly believe in getting the individual buy-in, you know, at whatever level a person is able to. And for us, that is a, that's a litmus test of how well we're doing um, to have raised as much as we have thus far and... Um, have it all be individual contributions. So I think our campaign is going well. It's it's 100% grassroots. Everyone on our staff is volunteer, so no one's getting paid. And to be honest, we're all working full-time. I'm working full-time. I taught a full day of classes. After we finish this, I'll go teach another two hours of classes, and I'll go to the May World Forum. Um, and, and that's been a lot to manage for our team. But I think what's great is the energy has not died down. We feel very invested in this race. Um, and I feel so invested because I go to the schools and, and my students are calling me Mayor Oliver. And that it's not that they're calling me that that um, fills me with joy. It is that they are paying attention to a mayoral race that I don't think they would have paid attention to on an off year and an odd year um, at all. And so I think that that is a really powerful dynamic shift in the communities that I spend a lot of my time. In regards to, you know, McGinn jumping into the race, um, and, and all of the requests that have been made of Murray to maybe not seek re-election, you know, I think the more diversity we have in the race, the better. Um, I think it allows Seattle to start to really grapple with philosophically, but also vision-wise, who do we want to be and who do we want to be under this, this federal administration? And what sort of leadership can actually bring us to the place of not simply surviving under this administration, uh, but actually thriving and uh, getting to a place where we are a city that's truly about being progressive, truly about justice, and truly about equity. I mean, we have the Race and Social Justice Initiative, and um, that's great, but I think we can take it much farther. And so I, I really look forward to the discussions uh, with these new candidates. Uh, hopefully the discussions in the media will be equally as nuanced and complex and honoring of all of the different candidates' identities and what we bring to the table. Uh, but I think it's great. Well, and I'm sure, you know, the one, th one constant has changed now, as you've seen in the last week, another couple weeks to the filing deadline. So mm -hmm. maybe more. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for episode 33 of The Overcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guest, Nikita Oliver. We want to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at dbeekman at jim underscore bruner. Email us at cltimesovercast at gmail.com. Call us and leave us a voicemail at 206-464-8778. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes. You can also hear us on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or whatever else you use to listen to podcasts. So until next week, have a cloudy day.